Good morning. It's a joy to be with you this morning. I want to commend you for studying the book of Isaiah. If you've ever tried to study Isaiah, you know how complicated the book is. Uh, in fact, books that have 66 chapters, they require a lot of stamina to study, don't they? Uh, and this is a book that constantly seems to be presenting issues and problems that are challenges for interpretation. And we'll be trying to talk about a few of those this morning. Uh, but, of course, others will be discussing other things throughout the day that are also relevant. I'm going to get through about chapter 7 when it comes to the issues. So we're not going to get as far through the book as we might if we had several hours to do it. But the first thing that I want us to do as we begin is to start by looking at the time when Isaiah lived. Now, for a lot of books of the Bible, this is a pretty straightforward question. We know when these guys lived. We know pretty close to the time they wrote. And therefore, there isn't really much need for discussion. The problem with the book of Isaiah is that the, the prophet lives during the latter part of the 8th century B.C. And some of the material in the book is about that period, what we call the Assyrian period. But the prophet also talks about the Babylonian period, when the Israelites go into exile. He also talks about the Persian period when they return from exile and gives very specific information on each of those periods. Now that naturally presents a question. How could a prophet know what was going to happen some 150 years after his death? Now, I'm talking to a group of preachers here, so I suspect you know the answer to that question, because the Lord was inspiring him to know that. But that is not the question you will find answered in most of the commentaries on Isaiah. In fact, you probably are aware that most scholars believe that the Bible is a remarkable book produced entirely by the genius of human beings. And because it is produced by human genius and humans cannot know the future with precision, then Isaiah could not have known the future with precision. And so they try to divide the book up into three different parts. There is proto-Isaiah, which roughly covers chapters 1 through 39 of the book. There is deutero-Isaiah, second Isaiah which covers roughly 40 through 55. And then there is Trito-Isaiah, 3rd Isaiah, chapters 56 through 66. These are written by three different authors at three different time periods, but all smushed into the same book that we know as Isaiah. Now, a lot of people say, well, I don't see what the big deal is about that. We'll talk about that in just a moment. Uh, but the fact is, as we begin, I want us to kind of walk through each of these time periods hopefully getting a context for the book in mind. Starting with the historical Isaiah, there is an issue that is confronting the reader, especially in Isaiah chapter 7. And I want to talk about that later because this is the context for the famous virgin birth prophecy. But there is a historical background to that chapter that cannot be neglected if we are to properly understand Isaiah chapter 7. And one of the things that we know is going on is the Assyrians are gaining prominence. The Assyrians have built this large empire, and they've got this great warrior king named Tiglath-Pileser III. When I teach prophets at Freed Artiman, I stop saying that name because it takes too long, so we just call him TP3. Okay, so we're going to say TP3. Tiglath-Pileser III, he's also in the Bible called Pool. 
And I assume he's called Poole because people didn't want to write Tiglath-Pileser III. And so, but in any case, Poole, or TP3, is building this major military power. And so he starts to move to the east. He defeats the Babylonians, and then he's going to attack the Syrians. Now, here's the problem with that. The Syrians and the northern kingdom of Israel have for a long time, about 100 years, been at war one another, with one another. You know that from studying the book of Kings. But at this point in history, they see the Assyrians are a greater threat, and so they decide to make an alliance. And so Pekah, the king of Israel, and Rexin, the king of Syria, they band their forces together. And they say, well, the two of us are really strong, but we could be even stronger if we reached out to these other nations in our area. So they go down to Jerusalem and they have a meeting with King Ahaz and they say, we want you to join us. And if you do, we'll protect you and you help us. But if you don't, we're going to launch a war against you and we're going to take over your nation. Now you can appreciate that's a kind of a rough situation to be in. And so Ahaz says, well, what should I do? I can either reach out to the king of Assyria, TP3, and make an alliance with him. Or I can reach out to my brethren to the north, Israel, and their ally, Syria, and make an alliance with them. What should I do? Now, the word of the Lord comes through the prophet Isaiah to King Ahaz and said, let me tell you what you should do. Nothing. Somebody once said, nothing is often a good thing to do and always a good thing to say. There's some truth to that, isn't there? Isaiah says, God says in about three years, by the time this child that is going to be born of an Alma is born and weaned, this threat will be over. So don't do anything. Of course, Ahaz doesn't do that. He makes an alliance with the Assyrians and the entire nation of Judah at that point comes beholden to a foreign power for the rest of its Old Testament history. And so it's a pretty significant turning point. But all of that is based on this history. So who are the Assyrians, and why is Ahaz so interested in making an alliance with them? That's a good question. I like to show pictures. Um, whenever I first started teaching at Fried Hardeman, I was also writing a dissertation, and when I went back to Hebrew Union uh, to meet with some of my teachers and uh, some of my friends, they said, how are you able to teach full-time, have your first child, preach every weekend, and write a dissertation? And I said, that's easy. I show a lot of pictures. <laughs> and so sometimes you can get a lot of mileage out of pictures. Well, here's some pictures that really speak loudly. This is from Sennacherib's palace at Nineveh. Now, this is from a later time period, but still during a period covered by the prophet Isaiah. King Sennacherib was the second king after Tiglath-Pileser to reign over the Assyrians. And you'll remember he launched a campaign against Judah. You'll remember that he took the city of Azekah. He took the city of Lachish, and he was laying siege to the city of Jerusalem when miraculously a pestilence came through the camp and killed 185,000 of his soldiers, and he went home. You remember that story from Isaiah 38. Now, that's what this is talking about. This is the siege of Lachish. These are Jewish people who are being killed, and it's being memorialized on a palace wall of an Assyrian king. Now, that's pretty interesting, isn't it? 
But let's see what kind of people these were. Now, you can see some things over here. Missiles being launched into the walls of the city. You can see a siege engine with towers on top. You see people sneaking out of the city. You see archers and you see people with lances and shields. I don't know if you can actually see that or not from back there. But uh, in any case, you have to trust me. Uh, if not, uh, just Google it, okay? And you'll find these pictures. This is in the British Museum, by the way. But notice what's going on in this scene here. These are people trying to sneak out of the city and they are caught. So what do you do to prisoners who are caught? Oh, not much. You just shove a sharpened stick into their abdomen and let their own body weight work its way through their body until they die. Wouldn't have been a quick death, extremely painful. That's what the Assyrians did to people who tried to flee a city under siege. But it gets worse than that. If you're close up, you can see the details. If you're far away, maybe you can't. These are men who have been stretched out with the purpose of being flayed alive. Their skin being ripped from their bodies. You can see the bones and the tendons that are even in this carved relief shown. And in the midst of all this, what are these little dudes doing over here? Now there's a dispute, I, I guess, among the art critics as to whether these are Israelite children being forced to watch as their father's skin is torn from their bodies, or whether they're Assyrian children being taught this is how we treat conquered enemies. Either way, it's hard to blame the prophet Jonah for not wanting to preach to these people, isn't it? I think if I were to receive a word from the Lord... Knowing what I can understand and my limited knowledge of the Assyrians and how horrible they were and the kind of evil things they did and how much every single one of them deserved to die. If I was told go preach to these people, I might say, you know what, that ship going to Tarshish sounds a lot better to me, too. It's easy to judge people until we're dropped in their circumstances. And then maybe sometimes their actions become a lot more intelligible to us. But here's an example of how bad the Assyrians were. These are the people who are seeking to attack Israel. These are the people who are marching against the kingdom of Judah. Well, that really changes things, doesn't it? This is from the same palace. It's just a bigger scene. You can see kind of the wall, the part of it that exists. And these are people carrying their little knapsacks going off into exile, being forced to march away from their homes, away from their families, away from everything familiar, and go into a foreign land. Those were the Assyrians. And it's this period when Isaiah is born and when Isaiah begins his ministry to the people of Judah. So let's talk about this question of unity. I mentioned that the book of Isaiah covers three historical time periods, the Assyrian, the Babylonian, and the Persian. The Persian period would have been, again, some 150 years after the life of the historical Isaiah, and therefore, he could not have known those events unless he was inspired by God to know them. So let's talk about why people find that difficult to grasp. Most of the time, whenever we have prophets in uh, prophecies in the Old Testament, they're not very specific. Uh, Days are coming, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the first covenant I made with their fathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. That's not time specific, is it? 
days are coming. At some point in the future, God is going to change his arrangement with his people and he's going to establish a new covenant. Okay. But in Isaiah 44, 28, and it continues into chapter 45 and verse 1, here's what the Bible says. Now, Isaiah is writing at best at the beginning of the 7th century B.C., maybe late 8th century. And here's what he says. God says of Cyrus, Cyrus is the king of the Persians who doesn't come onto the throne of Persia until the 550s. So the middle of the 6th century. Who says of Cyrus, naming him by name, he is my shepherd and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built. What do you mean she shall be built? She hasn't been destroyed. Jerusalem still exists when Isaiah is saying this. End of the temple. Your foundation shall be laid. What do you mean? The, the temple's foundation is already laid. The temple is still standing there, Isaiah. What are you talking about? Cyrus is going to come along and rebuild Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. There's nothing to rebuild. It hasn't been destroyed. Thus says the Lord to his anointed. By the way, this is the Hebrew word Mashiach, Messiah. Cyrus, this pagan king of Persia, is called the Lord's anointed. Yeah. To his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and to loose the belt of kings to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. Now, again, it is not unusual to have prophecies in the Old Testament. It is, however, unusual for the prophecies to name the names of the people who are going to come to the throne over a hundred years before they actually do. And so for a, lot of, uh, of, for a lot of people, this just simply cannot be a legitimate prophecy. It must be that a later author wrote this, making it look like a prophecy, when in reality it was no prediction at all, but merely a reflection based on previous history. Okay. The second thing that leads people to think that the book of Isaiah could not have been written by the historical Isaiah in the 8th century is that the Babylonian and Persian periods in the second half of the book, in chapters 40 through 66, are not predicted. The prophet doesn't say, this is going to happen. It seems that these periods are actually presupposed. The author is saying, this is happening. This is taking place right now, before your very eyes. Now, normally, whenever we have things that are predicted, there's some kind of formula that indicates that, right? This is going to happen. Isaiah doesn't do that. He just describes it as though it's a known reality to the audience. And so these are really the two major reasons why scholars think that it must be that Isaiah in the 8th century did not write at least chapters 40 through 66, but he only wrote chapters 1 through 39. Now, in favor of the fact that Isaiah did indeed write those chapters, the whole of the book, all 66, Number one, every single Hebrew manuscript we possess of Isaiah has, or at least originally had, you understand, manuscripts can be fragmentary now, all 66 chapters in one book, and none of them, as far as we can tell, ever indicate there was any knowledge of any gaps. In fact, the great Isaiah scroll, which was one of the first Dead Sea Scrolls to be discovered, from what eventually became known as Cave 1 at Qumran. At the bottom of a column, chapter 39 ends, and there is space for one more line in that column. 
just one, chapter 40 begins as the last line at the bottom of the column with the words, famous words, comfort ye, comfort ye, my people. Now, if there was any knowledge on the part of that scribe that this was a different author, it would have been simple just to skip, skip one line and start chapter 40 on the next column. But by accident, I guess for us, he didn't do that. And so as far as the manuscripts we have are concerned, it's very clear that there is no distinction between 1 through 39, 40 through 55, and 56 through 66 in the book of Isaiah. But maybe manuscripts don't mean that much to you. Hopefully the New Testament does. Notice the Bible says in Matthew chapter 4, and I'll just stay in Matthew, we're going to be 12 chapters into the New Testament, and that's where we'll stop. We don't need to go any further. The New Testament authors actually quote from all three sections of the book of Isaiah, attributing all three sections of the book of Isaiah to, guess who? Isaiah. In chapter 4 of Matthew, the Bible quotes from Isaiah 9, proto-Isaiah. That it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, and he goes on to talk about the Gentiles and how uh, Jesus's ministry is going to shed light uh, to those people. Great subject, but uh, that's not the purpose for the quotation. Just want you to know, Matthew refers to this as Isaiah's work. Well, no big deal, because that's what all scholars think anyway, right? That Isaiah, the historical Isaiah, was responsible for at least most of chapters 1 through 39. Okay, let's go on. Matthew chapter 3 in verse 3, this time quoting from what scholars call Deutero-Isaiah, Isaiah 40 through 55. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying of John the baptizer, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. What's it saying here? That that passage in Isaiah chapter 40 about the voice crying in the wilderness, that's this guy. Not only did Isaiah say it, but he prophesied hundreds of years in advance. And John the Baptist is the fulfillment. Trito Isaiah, Matthew chapter 12, verses 17 and 18. Same kind of thing. That it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet. Now, unless we want to argue there were three different Isaiahs and the New Testament just confused them all, which is, by the way, what some people do say. The New Testament authors just confused it. They just got it wrong. They were the victims of a tradition that was hopelessly ignorant. But you see, we in our enlightened state have now figured it all out. What they did not know. By the way, in the ancient world, the default setting is people in the past knew more than we know. That, that is, the Greeks and Romans actually believe that if you go back far enough into human history, you find greater wisdom, more intelligence, people who understood life better. And I guess they had reasons for thinking that. I mean, look at the pyramids. They were ancient by the time the Israelites arrived in Egypt, right? I mean, these people had evidence that there were people who were far more advanced and far more intelligent than they were, and they had a little bit of intellectual humility. On the other hand, we in the modern world have come to believe that nobody has ever come close to our level of intelligence. And so anybody who lived in the past was just simply ignorant. That's a setting that people in the ancient world didn't have. And I think it's important as we read the scriptures to appreciate that. A respect for the past is not necessarily a bad thing. And so one of the issues that will inform all of the commentaries and really alter a lot of the comments that they give to these sections of Isaiah is this issue right here. 
And so this is something that ought to come up in the introduction. I'm not saying you shouldn't use these commentaries, but you need to know where these guys are coming from. You need to know why they're saying what they're saying. And you need to know that if you're reading the Bible as the inspired word of God, the commentators may not be reading it that way. And it's important to make that distinction. So we'll move on to issues within the book itself uh, as we work through some of these major issues in helping us understand Isaiah. And one of those is found in chapter 1. The prophetic critique of sacrifice is pretty well known. And in fact, this is often quoted in the New Testament, that God didn't care about sacrifice in the first place. Now, I know that we all preach, and we all take a great deal of pride in the Sunday morning attendance, which we're happy to advertise and talk about. We don't talk much about Sunday evening and Wednesday night attendance. <laughs> but we love to tell everybody our Sunday morning worship numbers. Believe me, I'm like that too. I, I get it. I get it. But the fact is that there's a, a lesson here that we can learn from Isaiah about how we talk about worship. If you are coming to worship, but you are not changing your life as a result of encountering God, it's not doing you much good, right? There, there are uh, people that we study with on a fairly regular basis who are willing to come to church. They might even be willing to baptize, but what they're not willing to do is move out of that house with their girlfriend. They don't want to repent, but they do want to be saved. They don't want to change, but they do want to come to worship. And I don't know what you guys do. We encourage them to come to worship and study the Bible and everything we can. But unless they're willing to repent, we're not going to encourage them to become members of our church. Repentance is just as important as anything else, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Isaiah talks about this. And in fact, in chapter 1, I, I won't go into uh, reading this. I'll let you do that on your own. Many of you know this passage well anyway. But Isaiah talks about in verses 11 through 15 how worship is itself an act of reverence. And it's that attitude that makes worship so special. Not the actions that are commanded that we execute, but the attitude with which we execute those actions. And this is not the, the only time in the Old Testament this kind of thing is said. We remember the words of Amos chapter 5 beginning in verse 21. Where the prophet has the Lord say, I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Whoa, oh God, let's hit the pause button. Did you not command those feasts? Did you not require those solemn assemblies? I mean, I've read Leviticus, right? You required those things. How can you say you hate them? He says, even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps. I will not listen. But here's the punchline, right? But let justice roll like waters and righteousness like an ever flowing stream. Stop taking advantage of the poor. Start reaching out to people who are in need and stop coming to church and thinking you're going to solve the world's problems and you're going to save the souls of people simply by gathering in a church building three days a week. Now, that's not exactly what Amos says, but it's pretty close as an application. If the only religious thing we do takes place inside the church building, we're not doing what we ought to be doing. Amen. And so we need to be reaching out to people. We need to be seeking people who are searching for God in their lives and making sure that what we do in worship is a reflection of what's taking place in our heart every single day. That's what Isaiah is saying too. 
God says, listen, you can pray all you want, you can sacrifice all you want, but it doesn't make a bit of difference to me if it's not changing your life. And that's how biblical worship is so different from pagan worship, and so different from the way many people wish to worship today. In fact, the prophetic critique of sacrifice involves really one of five different elements. I put them up here on the screen. One is the assumption that God's past is a guarantee of present security. We see that with the prophet Jeremiah. Remember in Jeremiah chapter 5 when Jeremiah says, Will you stop saying the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord? You see, what people were doing is they, they say, Jeremiah, God's not going to leave us. He's not going to let the Babylonians destroy us. You know why? You see right there on that hill? That's called God's temple. And that is proof that God dwells in this city and he will protect it. You know why? Because he already has. Remember when Sennacherib's army was encamped against us and 185,000 died in a single night? You see what God did in the past? He's going to do it again. People sometimes get a false sense of security because they think God's past is a guarantee of his people's future, regardless of whether his people obey him or not. There's some people who think the church is going to survive because the church has always survived. Not if we don't do something about it. Not if we're lazy and stop working, right? Number two, worship is not a surrender to God, but a manipulation of God. There are a lot of people in the ancient world who felt that way. That when you offer the right sacrifices on the right days, in the right times, and on the right way, in the right ways, that God will be appeased and he's going to love you and do whatever you want him to do. Okay, there are two expressions that are often associated with this. One is the Latin expression opus operatum, which means, let's see, it means that there is inherent value in offering the sacrifice. Just going through the motions is enough to please God. And the second one is do ut des. I do in order that you might do. If you give God a sacrifice, he's going to give blessings to you. Now, do we still teach that today? Uh, maybe we do, maybe we don't. Do people still believe that today? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Why is bad stuff happening to me? I go to church. Well... Maybe. And I can't always explain why bad stuff happens to people. But the fact of the matter is, it is not a guarantee that God will do nothing but bless you just because you give him what he asks in worship. It's more complicated than that. But the Israelites didn't want to recognize that. Number three, they tended to make God eminent. Or number three, they tend to make worship more about people than about God. That still happens today, right? What do people want? Well, that's how we're going to worship. Now, let's be careful about pushing that too far because we don't just let anybody lead singing, right? We want them to be able to carry a tune. I mean, you don't want me leading singing. You get somebody who knows what they're doing. So we do have a little bit of that. Uh, but when it becomes all about what people want and nothing about what God wants, there's a problem. Number four, they tended to make God eminent and anthropomorphic. They transformed God into the image of man rather than commanding man to be transformed into the image of God. That's still a problem in our world today. And then number five, worship was all about ritual and sacrifice rather than the daily demands of a moral life. Isn't that true? 
even today, that if you just go through the motions, if you just show up, and you just sing the songs, and you just hear the lesson, that is enough. You don't need to do anything else. You don't have to change your life. You don't have to alter your heart. You don't have to do the hard stuff. Well, of course, that's not what Isaiah is talking about. Worship requires, he says in verses 16 and 17, I don't have it here, really, it's all about transformation. Look at those verses in Isaiah 1, 16 and 17. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. What have you done for your community? What have you done to help people who are in need? It's not just about serving in the temple. It's also about serving in the streets. It's about changing your life. Religion without transformation is like a car with no engine. It might look nice on the outside, but it ain't getting you anywhere. We need to appreciate that. In Romans 12, 1 and 2, Paul, of course, talks about the subject of transformation. This time talking about the sacrifices we offer to God as living sacrifices. Richard Foster, uh, a spiritual formation guru of sorts, says the only problem with living sacrifices is they're always trying to crawl off the altar. And there's a lot of truth to that. As long as we remain living, it is easy for us just to weasel our way off that altar God has placed us upon. Religion without transformation is useless. But then, secondly, let's look, more pictures here, by the way, at Isaiah's vision of God. One could argue that Ezekiel chapter 1 and Isaiah chapter 6 are two of the most visually stimulating chapters in all of Scripture. And I would argue in all of ancient literature. They are powerful depictions of the glory and presence and holiness of God. In Isaiah chapter 6, the Bible says, beginning in verse 1, and this is, all these depictions are tied to things that we can know from the culture. In the year the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe, or the hem of his robe, some of your translation have the fringe of his robe, filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. What's a seraph, by the way? We're, we're conditioned, because we've seen lots of Renaissance po uh, portraits, to think that cherubim and seraphim, cherubim and seraphim, are fat babies with wings. Is that what these are? The Hebrew word seraph literally means a burner. And this is a term that's apparently used in Numbers 23 when God sent serpents among the people. In Numbers 21, rather. Sent serpents among the people. The word seraphim describes those poisonous snakes. So is God being depicted surrounded by fat babies with wings? Or is it something more like a cobra snake? Something threatening and dangerous and yet capable of protecting the majesty of God? Of course, you remember the Pharaoh. What's on top of that headdress that the Pharaoh wears in all of those famous portraits, a cobra snake, right? It could be that God is co-opting that image for himself. Yeah, you trust in Egypt? I got cobra snakes all around me. In fact, they got wings that so they can fly too. 
what now? Okay. Um, or whatever the case may be. But notice going on, above him stood the seraphim, verse 2, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. Notice that one is to express holiness, right? And one is to express utility. These are, are wings that function all for God in his glory. All right, so let's take a look at some of these things. Here is the hem of a garment. The priests, remember, were supposed to have hems on their garment made of purple, very expensive kind of fabric. This is what Isaiah says fills the entire temple. Now, when that little fringe of your garment is filling the temple, how big is the robe? And how big is the guy inside the robe? So this idea of God, he's so enormous that Isaiah really can't see God, but just his, just his fringe, the fringe of his garments, fill the temple. These are creatures that are Assyrian in inspiration. In fact, they look exactly like what Ezekiel describes in Ezekiel chapter 1. But notice you've got the feet of a bovine creature. You can see this better in the next slide. But you've got the body of a lion. You've got the face of a man, and you've got the wings of an eagle. These are Assyrian images. They were seen by Ezekiel every single day when he's in exile. He's not making this stuff up. What he is, however, saying is, you think these are symbols of Assyrian gods? No, they're symbols of our God. He's greater than all those gods. You think the Egyptian Pharaoh is a god? You haven't seen anything yet. This chapter is all about trying to teach Isaiah that God is greater than all the religious iconography that the pagan world has to show. This is a side image of the same thing that we just saw with the wings here. Wings are very important uh, in pagan art, especially for those who protect the divine. Here's a throne with a winged creature, a bovine creature with the body of a lion again. This, uh, this time a god. By the way, in ancient Near Eastern art, the gods are almost always seated. They're sitting down and others stand in their presence as though on a throne. Here is a, a looks like a Phoenician kind of icon, but you can see the six wings, one, two, three, four, five, six, that are flanking this creature. Now, I didn't put this on here. I thought that would be a bit presumptuous, but could this be what Isaiah envisions around the presence of God. I don't know. Also notice you've got the size of God. A temple from Syria. Now remember what we just said at the beginning of the lesson about the Syrians in the closeness with which Judah had this encounter with the Assyrian with the Syrians and Israelites. Okay? Maybe it's the case that in Isaiah chapter 6 God is trying to prove he's greater than the gods of the Syrians. So this is the Ain Dara temple in what was ancient Syria. And I want you to notice something. Anybody see something on that photograph of interest? Notice, now why is there one foot here and two here? He's kneeling. What? He's kneeling. Okay, he could be kneeling, in which case maybe he wouldn't have feet at all, but knee marks possibly, but he's, he's walking. The God is walking into his temple. This is the Holy of Holies, you see. Israel's tabernacle and temple were not the only place that had specialized inner space that was restricted as the holiest area in the structure. <laughs> but notice these feet walking into the temple. Now, the reason I show this is because the enormous size of the God. 
human feet compared to divine feet, as it were. Now, of course, Isaiah is not carving out an image in concrete, right? He's not carving out a stone image of some kind of earthly depiction of who God is in a physical sense. It's all an image created in our mind on the pages of this literature. But it creates this image of God as this enormous figure who's at least as large, maybe even larger than all the gods of the Syrians. Why would we worry about them when we've got a God who's just as great or even greater? Pictures like this put people in the world of Isaiah, put people in the world of the Old Testament, show them what this world was all about. I think it's significant. So with that in mind, let's jump to this. Isaiah chapter 7. Everybody loves this chapter. And this is the place where we'll need to end because we're quickly approaching our time. But Isaiah chapter 7, notice beginning in verse 10. You can see right away at cha in chapter uh, 7 and verse 1, there is a context. This whole chapter is tied to history. This is not some prophecy of future events distantly fulfilled. This is something going on in the lifetime of the characters in the story. So notice in verse number 10. Again, the Lord spoke to King Ahaz through the prophet Isaiah. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz says, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. Ahaz says, God, I don't want a sign from you. I don't want to put you to the test. I don't want you to tell me what to do because God, ugh, if you tell me what to do, then I just might be required to follow it. You know, sometimes people talk like, man, I wish the Bible were a whole lot bigger than it is. I don't. <laughs> First of all, it's, it's, it's hard enough for me to remember what's in there now. And you probably feel the same way. But here's the problem with additional revelation comes additional requirements, right? As God further reveals himself, we are further obligated to live in accordance with that revelation. So I would love to be able to obey what I know and rely on grace for what I don't. The fact of the matter is, King Ahaz recognizes that lesson. Listen, Lord, if you tell me what to do, I'm going to have to abide by it. So, so don't tell me what to do, whatever it is. Let me have this one on my own. So Isaiah doesn't like that very much. And so verse 13, he said, Hear then, O house of David, referring to the royal family. Is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Ahaz, man, you're driving me crazy. Now you're driving God crazy. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. And I'm reading the English Standard Version. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. By the way, this means that he is weaned. Children in the ancient world were weaned at about three years old. Sorry, mothers. <laughs> Today it's about one. In the ancient world, it's three. Okay, so what he's saying is by the time this child that's going to be born in your own lifetime, okay, is old enough to be weaned, this threat <coughs> is going to be over. <coughs> the land whose two kings you dread, Pekah and Retzin, Syria and Israel, will be deserted. No, I'm stuck right there. Everybody wants to separate this passage from its context, naturally, and figure out a way that this can refer to Jesus. Now, we'll get to that in just a minute. But let me suggest something. 
Isaiah was inspired by God, just as Matthew. I feel like I want an amen on that. Isaiah was inspired by God, just as Matthew. We cannot sacrifice Isaiah on the altar of Matthew. Amen. Amen. So whatever interpretation we apply to Isaiah 7.14, it must do honor to Isaiah as well as to Matthew. So what do we do? Well, obviously this is not a passage that looks like a prophecy, but that's not a real problem. Because Matthew has lots of Old Testament passages that he calls prophecies that to us don't exactly look like them. Hosea 11 and verse 1, out of Egypt I have called my son, for example. That's about Israel in Hosea, but Matthew says it's about Jesus and the first family of God. All right, Matthew, I'll go with you on that. You know, because Matthew deserves to say what he wants to say, and I'm going to obey it. And so the fact is that sometimes we have Old Testament prophecies that to us don't exactly look like prophecies. Psalm 22 does not read to me like a prophecy, but it is a scripture virtually blow by blow of the crucifixion and the subsequent establishment of the church. Unfortunately, most people stop reading with verses 1 and 2. If you keep reading, it talks about how God is going to establish in the Greek Old Testament an ecclesia, a church. And so it keeps going. But the fact is, this passage is very similar. The term alma in Hebrew, and I'm going to say this, and I want you to hear me very, very carefully. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. The term alma does not mean virgin. But it can include virginity. Okay? If I were to refer to my little girl, and I've got two of them, I don't need to talk about their sexuality. But when you know they're six and three, you're going to conclude in all probability that they're virgins, right? Even though that's not built into the meaning of the word, it is included in the meaning of the word. And so that's probably the way that we are to understand that uh, particular passage. Another thing, the term Alma is found six times in the Old Testament, only six. And this is left out of the discussion most of the time, but there is a masculine form of this word. In Hebrew, you make masculine nouns feminine by adding an H on the end. So Elam and Alma are exactly the same word. One is masculine in gender, one is feminine in gender. In 1 Samuel chapter 20 and verse 21, David is called an Elam. Now in 1 Samuel 18 and verse 27, we learn that he has already married the daughter of Saul, a girl by the name of Michal. So it's highly improbable that we could call David in 1 Samuel 20 a virgin when he got married two chapters earlier, right? And so it's clear in that context that this word doesn't mean virgin at all. But what about the Song of Songs in chapter 6, verses 8 and 9? Now I'm going to tell you, if you're reading the English Standard Version, it stereotypes the term Alma as virgin, but it doesn't do the same thing with Elam. That's what we call in translation inconsistency. There are 60 queens and 80 concubines and virgins without number. Queens, not virgins. Concubines, I would reckon, not virgins. And virgins. Why is that translation doing with the other two groups? I don't know. My dove, my perfect one, is the only one, the only one of her mother, pure to her who bore her. The young woman saw her and called her blessed, the kings and concubines also, and they praised her. 
Is that the best translation for this context? Don't know. Now here's the reality. And by the way, if you want to talk about Emmanuel, we can talk about him too. A lot of people say, well, God with us, that's got to refer to Jesus because who else could be God with us? Well, we've actually found cylinder seals from the Assyrian period that use names that are very similar. And so this was as common as a name Emmanuel might be in you know, Hispanic circles today. So no big deal there. But the fact is that in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 21, Matthew does not use the word young woman in Greek. He doesn't. That would be neonis. In fact, there are some early disputes between Jews and Christians, in which case they talk about this. And the Jewish authors say, the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, mistranslated the Hebrew. It doesn't mean young woman. Or it doesn't mean virgin, it means young woman. And the Christian is like, well, the Septuagint says what it says, and Matthew quotes that. So, whereas the term Alma can mean, but doesn't have to mean virgin, the term Matthew uses, Parthenos, certainly and unequivocally means virgin. So what does that mean? Well, many of you are familiar with the concept of the dual fulfillment. Where for Isaiah, the term could mean young woman, because that's certainly well within the scope of the Hebrew word. But when Matthew wanted to apply this passage, he used a different word, a more specific word that conveyed virginity. If you insist that the term Alma in Isaiah 7.14 means virgin, then you've got a problem because you're not arguing for one virgin birth in the history of the world, but two. Because this passage has to mean something in Isaiah 7. And if you rob it of that meaning, you are again sacrificing Isaiah on the altar of Matthew and throwing away a part of what God has inspired. On the other hand, if we retain the term, which is more specific in Matthew chapter 1, it's very clear that Mary is a virgin, whereas if we read Isaiah 7 in its original Hebrew, it's certainly possible that the young woman Isaiah had in mind was not. I am way out of time here, so I better stop there and open it up for questions. And um, I would like to start at the beginning and ask if there are any questions about the Assyrian period or any of the, the worship things I talk about. I don't want to answer questions about the virgin birth for 20 minutes, in other words. <laughs> I guess I will if you want me to. I've read some commentaries that even though we still believe in this three-part Isaiah, we still say that whoever wrote the other two sections was still inspired because whatever was in Paul's mind when he spoke to Timothy would have included this in his Greek Old Testament. Whether it was written by three individuals or not, it could still have been inspired. And I've seen that a lot of Old Testament texts. So does it necessarily mean we throw it out the window that it is all inspired by one person or could it what are your thoughts on it being equally inspired by three different authors in three different time periods yeah I mean my uh, my thought on that was who are these other two guys and why are they called Isaiah I mean I we, know if it was super graphic I guess it's really common yeah writing in their name. yeah how how is that I mean that that to me is a harder issue to answer with with inspiration the Bible claims to be written at a time period when it's not by an author it's not maybe you can help me with a view of inspiration that accommodates that but that seems to be kind of hard to imagine now you can't trust what the Bible says about who wrote it or about when it was written but it's okay and especially when the motive seems not to be so much to square what is said in Isaiah with what is said in the New Testament, but what is said in Isaiah with what modern scholars, who certainly are uninspired, say. 
Yeah, I think I've seen that about someone who was not addressing the New Testament at all. It may have been like right. Brueggemann or something. Well, like that's that. what happens. That a lot of times these guys are talking purely from an Old Testament point of view, and they don't even consider the New Testament. Um, but yeah, you'll see that from time to time. You'll see that especially also with the date of Daniel, where Daniel, in, in that case, is a different issue because he's actually claiming to predict these events. And they said, well, we know that can't happen, and so you know, it's written later, but don't worry, trust us, it's still inspired. And that's just hard to uh, rationalize, and at least in my mind. Uh, other people might be able to help me with that. Um, another question? Um, it, it was my understanding that in the originals, or copies of the originals, or what have you, they didn't actually have chapter breaks. Right. That it's all just a document, so... Well, they didn't have chapter, chapter breaks, but they do have section breaks. If you look at some of the Dead Sea Scrolls, there are content breaks, actually. Con- content, I don't know what you call them, I guess content breaks maybe, but they understood that there was, there was a distinction in material. Uh, and I think one of the things, by the way, I'll throw this in, uh, but Psalm 22, right, begins with, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Which many people, uh, we've all preached great Sunday evening question and answer sermons where we're trying to figure out how it is that God exactly forsook Jesus on the cross. A way out of that is simply to argue that Jesus is quoting Psalm 22. He's not quoting, the. he's not saying, God, you've turned your back on me. He's saying, this is all about Psalm 22. And he starts, now how does Psalm 22 work? Despair to hope to victory. And it's a program of not only the crucifixion, but the future establishment of the church. What if Jesus is quoting, as would be done, the opening lines, because there are no chapters and verses, rather than saying, God, you've deserted me. So, I mean, my question goes on, and when you talk about the Dead Sea Scroll in chapter 39, and then the lifeline being the beginning of chapter 40, is there also a break there where you... No break. There's no break? No, no break. It's... It's, in fact, it's, as I said, there's one more line on that column, and it's Nahum, Nahum Ami, right? Comfort, comfort, my people. Okay. So, yeah, it's a pretty interesting little well, I mean, with that in mind, it would be hard for them to make the case that it was a, a different author there. Right? It, from that one document. Uh, of course, uh, you know, with other manuscripts uh, possible, but there aren't any other manuscripts that well, break it up either. That's the, yeah, that's the oldest one we have, 2nd century B.C. Any other questions or comments? In regards to the extreme specificity of the uh, uh, you know, prophecy, why do you think, and this is probably purely speculation on your part, but why do you think that Isaiah is so specific but other prophets aren't? <laughs> you know, I mean, you do, have, you do have great specificity. Again, but here, here's the thing. Every time you find specificity, you will find critical scholars who object to the historicity of that source because we know people cannot predict the future with precision. It's sort of the, the, the motif of critical scholarship. If it does not happen, it did not happen. Well, if we don't observe it today, it can't ever have happened. What, what I'm asking so, is, is like, I mean, if Isaiah is so specific, is there possibly a reason why he gets to be more specific? See, I don't, I don't know the answer to that question. I mean, it's a similar kind of thing with Daniel chapters 10 and 11 where he's basically laying out in precise detail, the intermarriage between what he calls the kings of the north and the kings of the south, but we know it's Seleucid and the Ptolemies, and they're all intermarrying with one another, and it's incredibly complicated, even for modern chronographers to get right. And Daniel's like, ba-boom, 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 got it all down. And it's like, well, there's no way anybody could do that, because nobody can know the future with that kind of precision. 
So it's like, you know, Al Gore predicted the internet would be a big deal, right? <laughs> well, of course, that's not prophetic, right? Anybody could predict the internet. And so that's kind of how they like it. As long as you say, there's going to be better days to come, and then better days to come, and then a later author says, this fulfills what that was about. Well, no problem. But when you, got, when you have guys saying, this guy is going to reign, that's a much, much bigger issue. And so critical scholars, based on their aversion to predictive prophecy, cannot accept that. That's why they have to put the book of Isaiah at a later time, or at least that part of it at a later time. So I don't know why God did it that way, to answer your question. Um, I, I don't know. But it certainly is, if you accept it as true, certainly is very convincing, isn't it? Yeah. That he could have done that. How many years was it that Cyrus, when we talked about Cyrus, that what Cyrus actually when Cyrus actually sorry um, he, Cyrus was, Cyrus was his Messiah he talked about it then how long how many years passed well it's hard to know what that because there aren't a lot of things that we can date to the 8th century in that section so we don't know when he's speaking that but let's use 700 as a rough number because the math is easier okay Cyrus allowed the Jews to return from Babylonian exile in the year 739 and allowed them to rebuild their temple when they returned Okay, or 539, did I say 7? 539 BCE. And so you're talking about at least, what, 160 years or so from that moment. So that's why you can't accept it if you don't believe in inspiration, because it's just impossible. Yes. Uh, I missed it in the PowerPoint, but what was the name of the wall decor in the Assyrian palace? That this is just from a Sennacherib's palace at Nineveh. I don't know that it has a name, but it's the Siege of Lachish. If you put all those things in a search box, Siege of Lachish, Sennacherib's Palace at Nineveh. Yeah, it was, it was it's about 701 B.C. when those events took place scripturally. Now, the Syrian sources actually tell us that Sennacherib left, not because he got embarrassed by a, a plague in the army, but because there was a rebellion back home and he had to rush home to take care of it. Maybe both of those stories can be true, um, but... You say that's in the British Museum? I think so, yes. Um, yeah. It's not in the British Museum? Well, no, I was just trying to remember because I know you, part of it was it there, part of it was at uh, the Louvre. Oh, the Assyrian uh, the statues were. Cherubim. Cherubim. They're in the Louvre, yeah. Those, they're not every things from the same spot. Yeah. <clears throat> All right. Um, am I supposed to quit at 10, Andrew? No. If we got questions, we can have a few more minutes or we can take a break. Now, from what you said, the Septuagint uses the word Parthenos in Isaiah 7. That's right. Uh, and my Greek's not as good as it used to be. Might there be other possibilities in the Greek for Alma? You mean other possible Greek translations right. of all? Yeah. In fact, I referenced, I didn't get specific, but the, in Justin Martyr's dialogue with Trypho, which is written in the middle of the second century AD, Trypho's a Jew, and he says, you Christians are basing your faith on this guy in the wrong place because the Hebrew word means neonis. Not a marker word, I write the word. Yeah. Um, but um, you guys... You guys ought to be translating the word that way. And um, Justin says, well, 
even though the Septuagint trans translators were inspired anyway. So, but, but wait a minute, the Septuagint was translated by Jews. Correct. Uh, and so it wasn't the Christians that did that, it was the Jews that did that. That's correct. And what, two something? Well, we don't know exactly when Isaiah was translated. The Pentateuch was translated probably in the middle of the third century BCE. Okay. The other books later probably. But not, not down as far as the first century AD. Not Isaiah. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, the Jews translated it Parthenon, and therein lies the mystery, right? right. What were they thinking? Um, now, a, a lot of the church fathers argue for a double theory of inspiration. It's, kind of, it's not unlike the King James is translated kind of position that we see sometimes. Uh, the King James is inspired, rather. Uh, they say the Septuagint was inspired just as the Hebrew was inspired. So it's this double theory. Uh, I don't want to get into that, but no. thank you for not. <laughs> no. Either one. That was merely an analogy. <laughs> 